Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. Chris asked me to speak a few weeks ago about in this Back to Basics series and said, I said kind of, well, where and how and what. He said, I think you should speak on the church. I think that's what we need to hear. And so that's where we're going to go right now as part of this Back to Basic series. We're going to talk a little bit about the church and maybe more importantly some of the attitudes that go along with it. I'd like to actually let the Apostle Paul remind us of what we in a church such as this are supposed to look like, what we're supposed to have as attitudes. And I'm going to ask you, if you would, to stand with me and say, say and speak God's word together. So would you just stand if you're able? If you're not, that's quite okay. The words are going to be nice and big on the screen. And for those of you at home, it's your whole screen. And I'm going to ask you just to say it along with me. Uh, there'll be two slides. Ready? Here we go. Therefore, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, urge you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father who is over all and in all and living through all. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Please have a seat again. Did you catch some of the attitudes in there? A church where that renewal is taking place, when it's taking place in each of us, we should be exhibiting these kinds of attitudes. We should be living a life worthy of our calling, as we just read. And it, we should have certain attitudes, which Paul then doesn't try and make us guess about. He just says, this is how you should relate with each other. And first up on the list is humility. Humility is often misunderstood. It's not seeing ourselves as less important. It's seeing others as more important. A lot of people think that humility is putting yourself down. That's so not it. Humility is lifting the Lord up, lifting others up over ourselves. Humility is a word that has to do then with perspective, how we see things, how we see ourselves in relation to others. Think about this for a moment. God created you. So if you make humility about putting yourself down, you're actually putting down something that God created. You're putting down God's work in your life. That's not what it is at all. Can I take a quick time out for a moment here? I hear this so often, and we just need to believe it and know it. Never think that you don't have value. I'm talking to every single one of you who hears my voice in this moment. Never for a moment let the enemy tell you that you don't have value. Jesus thought you were worth dying for. Your value cannot even be estimated. It's beyond measure. He wanted you. He made you. He gave his life for you. And frankly, everyone else that you'll ever meet. Humility is lifting God up and recognizing your dependence on him 
as where your real strength comes from. See, a prideful person is a person who depends on themselves. A humble person is a person who depends on the Lord and who sees others as more important than themselves. Which, of course, takes me to my favorite, and you'll hear it again, I'm sure, the favorite chapter of mine in the entire Bible is Philippians chapter 2. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus humbled himself by becoming a man. Here's the one who made the universe, and yet he made himself a man. That means Jesus had to learn how to walk, how to talk. That had to be humbling. The God who made everything on this earth had to eat baby food for a while. But when you read Philippians 2, none of that compares to the ultimate example of his humility. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Can you imagine? Can I take you there for a moment? He's hanging there on the cross, experiencing every kind, and I mean every kind of excruciating pain that there is. And there's these guys down below, Pharisees and Roman soldiers, jeering up at him and saying, if you're really the son of God, we can settle this once and for all. Just come down from the cross. And Jesus looked down and he could have told them every sin they'd ever committed in their lives. He could have removed himself from the cross wouldn't you have felt a little bit like doing that because that was the easy solution and it's all going to work out then? But he humbled himself and he didn't do it. Humility. The next up was gentleness in that passage. Gentleness is not a word that often comes to mind as something to be aspired to anymore. Yet it's listed as one of the qualities to look for when you are choosing and uh, affirming church leaders, gentleness, are they gentle? Jesus described himself as gentle and humble at heart. He had gentleness in his life. This isn't a feminine quality like some people picture it. Gentleness is far beyond that. It's universal. It's a quality that every one of us needs in our lives because it really means power under control. I love that picture. It's a great word, this gentleness. There's a lot of sort of word pictures behind it. In the day when the New Testament was written, the word gentleness was used when you were referring to a medicine that could cure somebody. It was a gentle medicine. It was soothing. It brought healing. Or it was used when referring to a wind that might push a sailboat along at just the right speed. It was a gentle wind. Or it was used when referring to a horse, a stallion that had been broken, and now you could ride it or put it to work now. And when you look at all those things, the medicine and the wind and the horse, out of control, all of those can be very destructive. But unlike cats, they can be brought under control. <laughs> Someone's not going to like that, but, but unlike cats, they can be brought under control. And under control, they can become beautiful and useful. I like dogs, I'm sorry. Jesus was, yeah, thank you. Jesus was gentle. Jesus was gentle. When I think of Jesus being gentle, I suspect you get the same picture I do. I picture a child on his knee when all the disciples are saying, Jesus doesn't have time for little guys, little kids. Come on, move on. I picture instead the strong carpenter. Jesus was a strong carpenter with the gentleness in all that power and strength to hold carefully a little child. 
That's gentleness. And God says, I want this same attitude to be in your life, church. That there's gentleness in your life. That there's gentleness in the way that you respond to one another. This great power that I've given you, it's under my control. And under my control, you have a different attitude towards life. Thirdly, patience. A transliteration, which means just to kind of basically uh, just use the same words and, and translate just sort of directly as across as you possibly can. A transliteration of this word from the original Greek is long-tempered. We talk about being short-tempered all the time. Have you ever called anybody long-tempered? But that's what this means. We've all heard of people having a short fuse. Well, this means we're supposed to have a long fuse. And to a church like ours, that means I've got a long temper towards others. It means I show gentleness towards the people that are around me. I have humility in the relationships with other people. Do you want to develop these attitudes? The best way to do it that I know how is just to look at the master of them all, Jesus. He's the best example. Why not study? Why not learn from the master? I find it extremely interesting here, just kind of as an aside, that here, like as in 1 Corinthians 13, which Pastor Stephan has took, taken us through recently and learned to love, patience is directly connected to love. What's the very first word that God chose to use in 1 Corinthians 13 to describe love? I'm going to tell you what love is, people. Love is patient. Why of all the words he could have chosen, why patient? Well, those of us who are married, I think we probably can say, I have a pretty good idea why patient is a good word to start with, right? And here again, now patience is connected with love. Did Jesus have patience? Read the story of Jesus' relationship with his disciples and note the kind of patience he had for them. He was with these guys for three years. They walked around together and he was teaching them the whole time. They were with the Lord of the universe for three years. They had a perfect example before them, 24-7. Thousands of people understood that and followed and came. But as they walked away from one of those encounters one time, he could hear the disciples arguing in the background. So which of us is the greatest? James and John were so wound up about this, their mother came to Jesus and asked, uh, you know, when we all get there, when you get to heaven, can my son sit on either side of you in heaven, the most reserved and honored seats? If it was me, I'd be shaking my head going, maybe I need to rethink this fisherman becoming fishers of men kind of plan. But Jesus was patient with them. He loved them. That doesn't mean he never spoke a harsh word to them. That doesn't mean he intentionally didn't stir them up. He did. Doesn't mean he never pointed out some of their struggles. He did. But he patiently loved them right through their problems. Can I just tell you here, even in the midst of the stirring that we find ourselves in today, just know that Jesus is going to patiently love us right through this. He's a great example of patience. And we're to have patience with each other. It's the hallmark, if you will, of love. Let me invite you. Go home. Take any one of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and read through it and ask yourself the question, how did Jesus relate to people? That's the way to learn these attitudes we're talking about today. One of our commitments to each other is to learn these attitudes. Are any of us completely patient yet? 
Some of you have already thought, I wonder how long he's going on with this. Are any of you completely gentle yet? There might have been an elbow somewhere along already today too, like he's talking about you. Are any of us, like Jesus, perfectly ready? No, we're not. The question, you see, isn't how, how are we in relationship to other people? The question is, are we continuing to grow in these areas because they're just processes in, in, you know, we just keep working towards? That's the question we need to ask ourselves. These areas of being able to be long-suffering, patient, gentle, humble towards each other, how do we get those? We keep working at it. If we're going to be known for these things, then there is a fourth attitude here that cannot be overlooked. We've spent a lot of time on it this year. We must have an abiding love. That's real family love we're talking about here. That's what the Bible says in this last part of the verse we're looking at, making allowance for each other's faults. Why should we ever do something like that? Because of your love. I mean, when I think of making allowance, the good side of it is, I'm thinking, wow, grace, forgiveness, right? Making allowance. The bad side of it is sometimes we can decide that means we have to tolerate them, right? But we're in a family. We're in a family. And in a family, you get close to each other, don't you? The picture I kind of get as I think about family is, is sort of three generations gathering together. I mean, it certainly can happen in a church, and it's my joy that it's actually happening for me now. I don't know if I've shared with you before, but oh my goodness, the dream of my heart was that someday I would find myself in a church where there were three generations of us Pearsons all in the same church together. But it could be just around home too, around the uh, Christmas gathering or whatever. But that's the interaction that takes place there is I think the model that, that we're trying to be told here by Paul to do, to make allowance for one another. You see, when you gather like that, does everybody get their way? No, of course not. Little kids are running all over the place and grandpa's going, oi, 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 right? And in between, the parents are trying to keep both sets happy and cook the dinner. And, it, you know, uh, if you look at it for a moment, it looks like chaos. But underneath it, there is making allowance for one another. There is grandpa going, oh my goodness, it's noisy, but they're here. They're having fun. I'm so glad they're here. And on the other side of it, sometimes you say, you know what, it's time for grandpa to read a story, and you all need to just kind of sit and be quiet. And that's making allowance for grandpa's thing too, right? I mean, that's what family does. And, and you don't sit back and go, yeah, we need to analyze this and figure this all out. You just do it. Why? Because of love. Because of love. You're not trying to get your own way. You're not trying to have everything match up for this is what I like, this is what I need to get out of it. No, because of love, you're, you're just happy to be together. That's the point. That's what God is calling us to. To be happy, to be joyful, to just treasure being together because of love making allowance for each other's faults because of our love. See, when you get close to people, you get so close that you start to notice each other's faults and weaknesses, right? I tell kids that are getting married, I tell them, you're marrying the whole package, right? Like, you know this person, you know their strengths, you know their weaknesses, so when you say I do on that day, you're saying, I say yes 
to the whole package. And if today is as good as it ever gets, count me in for, oh, 100 years or so. Really? You don't just marry the good part and hope the bad part changes or somehow gets left somewhere. You're marrying the package. You say, I'm making allowance for some of those things about you that aren't perfect. Guess what? I know you're doing the same thing for me. How cool is that, that two people find each other and are willing to do that for each other? It's why, it's why we're told that's an example of, the, of a, you know, the marriage, the bride and the groom, that Jesus is going to call his church. We're together. We're a family. We make allowances. We understand that none of us is perfect. And the thing about family is they've decided out of love to be close. We've decided to love each other and be close because of our response to Jesus' command to love one another. But as I said earlier, please let me make a distinction here. You can read making allowance or bear with one another and think it means I have to tolerate them. To me, tolerate carries a very negative connotation, you can hear it in my voice, of grumbling acceptance. I have to tolerate them. Kind of like they're completely hopeless, but I guess I have to love them. So I'll tolerate them until I can graciously escape, right? Let's take a very serious and challenging look at what Jesus says about this. I think you will see how hugely important this is. After Jesus had celebrated his last supper with his disciples, he prayed, and the bulk of his prayer was for unity. He prayed for oneness amongst his disciples. Look in John 17 here as I read. And this is what he prays. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you love me. I want to pick on a few words there. That they may all be one, even as. Even as you and I are one. This is so much more than getting along, isn't it? This is so much more than just sort of saying, I'll tolerate this whole thing. How close are the father and son to each other? That close, right? Inseparable. And we're to be even as? We're to do the same? We're to be even as? Wow. That is something to aspire to. Because we have the Holy Spirit, we could probably at least tolerate each other. But that would be... Would that be like being one with one another? Can't we just get along, maybe like two porcupines? Isn't that good enough? No. Why then, right? Why strive for the perfect oneness that Jesus has with the Father? Why? This is crucial. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Have you ever totally unpacked that? Do you get what this is saying? This is how important our unity is. There's something about our unity as a church, as a community, that makes Jesus' message believable. Do you understand the, the responsibility we carry in that? There's something about our unity that makes Jesus' message believable so the world may know that you sent me. It's not just cutesy to be a family. It has eternal significance, and it's so worth every effort we make. 
And that's the next point I'm going to make. It's worth it to strive to be the family that God wants us to be. Humility, gentleness, patience, abiding love, grace, mercy, forgiveness. Develop these attitudes. Determine then to actually make the effort to do it, to work at it. Don't expect you're going to sit back and rest in the spirit and let things sort of flow and it will all kind of drift easily down to you and we'll all have great relationships and there will never be any stirrings or any struggles. That's not the way the Bible pictures it. Why bother then to say, make every effort, make every effort, fight for it. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. It doesn't say, do, you know, what would look good or put a little effort into it or on your way home, give it the college try. It says make every, every effort. And it's not easy to be unified, is it? Those of you who have gone through relational struggles, you know it's tough. It can be tough sometimes. It is. I think some of our greatest challenges, honestly, are relational struggles. But we can't make an effort for somebody else. We can't make them do it, and that's not what the Bible is telling us to do here. It says, this is your part. You're reading this. This is your part. Unity is hard work. God wouldn't tell us to make every effort if there wasn't effort required on our part, but it doesn't come just sort of naturally to us. It comes spiritually. It's about the hard work of depending upon his spirit. Hard work, of course, doesn't have to be unpleasant. We've sometimes pushed that to be a bad thing. But those of you who've done a project and had it turned out really well, you know kind of the, the satisfaction that comes at the end. That's not unpleasant. And, you know, when I've worked on a project at home and worked hard on it, and for once in my lifetime it came out right, well, I enjoy it. Otherwise, I'll let Jennifer do it. No, I'm kidding. We need to be able to do that with God's church, to be able to say, I gave myself to that relationship. It was tough, but it was worth it because it meant unity. Some of you have experienced this in yourselves, in ministries where you've served. Most people choose not to get involved in ministries or in cells because of the time and the effort that it takes. But the Bible says, not good enough. Make every effort. Make every effort. The great thing about unity and the work of unity and making every effort for it in our lives is we get to see the results of it for all eternity. We're going to spend eternity with each other in unity. We get to practice. We get to prepare. We get to work for it now. There's an old poem about the Christian life. It goes like this. To live above with saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with saints we know, that's another story. And there's some truth to that, isn't there? But we're going to live with each other for eternity. Why not get ready? Why not start to have a little bit of that heaven, a little bit of eternity now, living in unity with one another, determined to work at it? But as you do understand this one important thing about God's process in this, unity is the Spirit's work to create. Did you catch that? Make every effort to create the unity. That doesn't say that. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit, to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. That effort we're making is not to create unity. Oh, i got to work hard to create unity. The effort we are to make is to keep the unity that has already been given to us. Don't make the mistake of thinking, I've got to manufacture this unity all by myself. They're not manufacturing it. This isn't going to work. That's not what we're trying to do. What we're trying to do is keep 
the unity, to hold on to the precious unity, to enjoy the unity that the Spirit has already given to us as a gift. Do you consider it a miracle? I consider it a miracle. I've always considered it a miracle. I've always thought, boy, get five people together and you'll have all kinds of issues and troubles and disagreements and, you know, glad we're not living together. Well, how does it work when we get this many people together? How does it work when we actually have callings and we move forward and things are accomplished both here and around the world? How does that happen? It's a miracle, I tell you. It's the Holy Spirit giving us unity. Our job is to keep it. Our job is to make every effort to keep it, to fight for it, to be right in there in the trenches, not letting unity go rather than trying to create it in the first place. Through the bond of peace, as that verse ends, refers to the peace that God has given to us in our lives because of what Jesus bought for us on the cross. The effort is ours. The unity is the Spirit's. And to emphasize this, Paul ends with this glorious statement. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father who is over all and in all, and get this, living through all. And Jesus says, my church, when it is united in its oneness, when it's appropriating the new life that I have for it, my church will batter down the schemes and the strategies and the gates of, the hell, of hell and the evil one. The darkness and hatred and fear will be no match for my church. My church will seek and claim those who are lost. My church will listen for his voice and respond in obedience to God who loves them with such tenacity and intensity that it cannot be contained. That's his church. That's you and me. And under the power of God, together, we will continue to be and build that city on a hill. Together we will run, won't we? The race set before us. We will do this together. This renewed community in unity that is devoted to God and to each other. And friends, Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Would you stand and affirm that in song with me? Thanks again for joining us for our weekend message. If you have any needs or prayer requests, please give us a call at 204-326-9020 or email prayer at myselfland.com. Once again, our phone number is 204-326-9020 and the email address is prayer at myselfland.com. 